Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is October 28th, 2006, and we have for you a slam-dunk edition of Banal of America Audio. The guest is Scott Corrales, author of Chupacabras and Other Mysteries, and Flashpoint, High Strangeness in Puerto Rico. And the topic is Chupacabras, the mysterious beast that seemed to explode in the mid-90s. still lingers in esoterica, but you don't hear much about it nowadays. Scott and I go in-depth, top to bottom, on the Chupacabra mystery. Everything from the physical appearance and the traits of the Chupacabra, theories about what it is, the paranormal elements to the Chupacabra, the strange sociological aspect of that mid-90s Chupa wave in the Latin countries, Chupa migration, did it happen, and tons and tons more. Chupacabra eggs, we got Chupacabra hairs, we got more Chupacabra than you can shake a stick at. And it's all in this week's Been All of America audio. Plus, if that's not enough, we're going to talk about Latin American ufology, Scott's early influences, the differences and similarities between Latin American ufology and U.S. ufology, why the Latin countries love NASA, why Mexico seems to be a UFO hotbed, and tons and tons more in that regard as well. It's a jam-packed interview. We're covering a ton of material this week. Strap yourself in and get ready for a ride. If you're unfamiliar with Scott Corrales, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Scott Corrales became interested in the UFO phenomenon as a result of the heavy UFO activity where he lived in both Mexico and Puerto Rico. He was also influenced by Mexican ufologists Pedro Ferriz and Salvador Frejedo, a former Jesuit priest who advocated a paranormal interdimensional interpretation of the phenomenon. In 1990, Scott began translating the works of Frejedo into English, making the literature and research of experts and journalists available to English reading audiences everywhere. This led to the creation of the Samizdat Journal in 1993 and his collaboration with Mexico's CEFP group, Puerto Rico's PRRG, and the foremost researchers of Spain's so-called third generation of UFO researchers. In 1995, Corrales documented the manifestations of the entity popularly known as the Chupacabras in three works, The Chupacabras Diaries, Nemesis, The Chupacabras at Large, and Chupacabras and Other Mysteries. In 1998, the Samizdat Bulletin was replaced by Inexplicata, the Journal of Hispanic Ufology, as the official publication of the nascent Institute of Hispanic Ufology. In addition, Scott has been a guest on numerous radio shows, and his articles have been featured in several national publications. You can find out more information on Scott and check out a lot of his work at www.inexplicata.blogspot.com. Let me spell that out for you, I-N-E-X-P-L-I-C-A-T-A dot blogspot dot com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 13th, 2006. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Corrales on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome as my special guest this week, Scott Corrales. Scott has done a tremendous amount of research into Latin American esoterica, pretty much is the best way I can describe it, with a, a lot of emphasis on the UFO phenomenon and the chupacabra and uh, a lot of uh, high strangeness and paranormal activity that's going on in Latin countries. He's done a tremendous amount of work translating other researchers' work from those Latin American countries and bringing that research to the English-speaking audience. And that's a service that has just helped a ton for a lot of people here in the U.S. who want to find out more about what's going on in the world and are held back by that language barrier. Thankfully, he's done a lot of great work to uh, open the doors to Latin American research for American researchers. 
And this week we're going to be talking about the Chupacabra, which is uh, something that I personally do not know too much about. I only really know about it in reputation alone, so I'm really glad we could bring somebody in here who's done some extensive research on the Chupacabra. And also we'll be touching on a little bit of the Latin American UFO scene. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Scott Corrales to the show. Good evening, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Terrific, thanks. Um, I should also mention that Scott has two books out, Chupacabras and Other Mysteries, and also Flashpoint, High Strangeness in Puerto Rico. And you can find out more information and get information from him at inexplicata.blogspot.com. And let me read that out and spell it for you. I-N-E-X-P-L-I-C-A-T-A dot blogspot.com. That's correct, right? That's correct. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, let's start out with your background and your bio and how you came to study the paranormal in general. Well, I guess it has to go right back to my parents moving to uh, Mexico in the early 70s uh, when the country was going through a significant amount of UFO and paranormal activity. Um, unlike, I'm guessing the attitude, the more skeptical attitude that people felt in the States. At that time in Mexico, people were much more open uh, about the subject. Uh, I was just uh, in grade school at the time, and my teachers were actively encouraging us to read up on it. Uh, magazines were being recommended. Newspaper clippings were being provided. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's... There was the, the idea, I guess back then people actually thought, you know, the space program meaning so much more in Latin America, I think, than it did in the States, uh, that people felt, well, now now we're going out to space, we're going to be meeting extraterrestrials, so isn't this great? By the time you kids all grow up, uh, you will have people from other planets, like tourists, walking up and down the streets. <laughs> and that was, that was no, seriously, that, that was yeah. basically the feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, it, was, it was very healthy. Um, to keep you know, to have people uh, at the time with such open minds among the adults, no one ever censored what I was reading. Um, growing up, so was providing me a lot of the books that I still have to the present uh, were given to me when I was a kid. So it's uh, very good memories. Nice, nice. I think I was more laughing at how disappointing the future has turned out. Yeah, <laughs> quite. Um, and now, in one of the bios I read on you, it said you were uh, highly influenced by two men in particular, and I wanted to ask you about them. It's always important, I think, to you know put over the early influences and, and talk about your mentors type of situation. Uh, Pedro Ferriz and Salvador Frejedo. Can you? And I probably mispronounced those names terribly, but no, that, that's quite all right. That's oh. Pedro Ferriz and Salvador Frejedo. Yes, they those are they're, they're, they were two giants of their time. Uh, Pedro Ferriz. Uh, was a Mexican uh, newscaster uh, of his day mm -hmm. who had one of the very first shows um, in Spanish language uh, television. It was called um, Otro Mundo Nos Vigila, Another World is Watching. And he was very much very active uh, believer in the UFO, the extraterrestrial hypothesis of the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. Um, published books, had magazine articles. He was very much like I'm trying to give you a good example, perhaps um, more of like a major Donald Quixote figure in Mexico, someone like that. Okay. No, no, more like a Frank Edwards 
figure. Oh, okay, yeah. Or right. in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like a media, like a media-oriented... Uh... Absolutely. Very much a media man. I think his, his show was on Channel 5 in Mexico, if I remember correctly. Now, Salvador Freixedo is certainly one of the giants of um, Spanish and Latin American ufology. He's a, a, a former Jesuit priest who left the Jesuit order in 1968 after questioning the church. Um, one of his interests happened to be parapsychology, and the road in down, you know, the, the road through parapsychology led to UFOs. Mm-hmm. And he wrote some very insightful books in the early 70s. One of them was Defendámonos de los Dioses, uh, Defying the Gods, or Let Us Defend Ourselves Against the Gods. That's two possible translations for the title. Um, that book worked it, it 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 didn't borrow heavily but i think it was influenced by john keel's own take on the paranormal reality behind the ufo phenomenon um it borrowed from charles fort's vision that we are property in turn it influenced other authors i believe he influenced the authors of a british book called the dark gods directly um so he's been very much a controversial figure um Especially now that the UFO field in Spain and Latin America has become much more skeptical, much more given to naysaying, and not quite so open-minded. Oh, wow. Okay. We're going to have to talk about that change in uh, attitude when we get to uh, Latin American ufology, because that that sounds fascinating. Um, And how did you end up focusing on the chupacabra? Uh, How did that come out of your UFO studies? Well, I think that if you look at the... um, my little flyleaf to the prologue of uh, Chupacabras and Other Mysteries, I mentioned something about having been very much influenced by the Mothman Prophecies, John Keel. Mm-hmm. When I saw it, uh, when, when I saw the book, I picked it up at a drugstore in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1975. And the idea that these creatures, clearly uh, denizens of another reality of some sort, seem to be able to come into our own reality. And yeah. interact and then vanish, then come back, and so forth. Uh, it, it really stuck to me. And at that time, I think for for a number of years after that, I kept um, you know files, clippings on Bigfoot and other strange creatures, a lizard man of North Carolina, and throughout the seventies. I mean, even living in 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 Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. there we had been. Well, not quite under the shadow, but I mean, the, the media influence was tremendous of a creature called the Mocha Vampire. Mm-hmm. And tasty though that may sound, yeah. Mocha is actually a little town um, in Puerto Rico on the Mona Channel, uh, the body of water separating Puerto Rico from Santo Domingo. Okay. And back in 74, 75, um, there were, was a wave of cattle mutilations um, by this creature that was never, ever seen. People always saw its handiwork. They saw the dead rapids, the dead horses, the mutilated mares. They saw everything, but no one ever saw the creature. So you had this shadowy phantom that committed these delinquent acts, shall we call them, yeah. always in the background. So 20 years later, almost 20 years uh, to the day, when you start getting the chupacabras, I already had, let's say, all the background information I needed to launch myself into this particular set of apparitions. And, which uh, I'll just throw his name in there again, Salvador Fricedo, 
had researched while he lived in Puerto Rico in 1974-75. So there was a lot of his work to use as a springboard into the current, um, well, the then current events. Okay. Um, and now for the folks who are kind of vaguely unfamiliar like me with the uh, with the Chupacabra, uh, there's an awesome picture or drawing, I guess, uh, of the Chupacabra in the book that is just freaky. Um, could you describe the Chupacabra's physical appearance and uh, pretty much like what it's mostly known for, which is like attacking and, and killing and sucking the blood from uh, livestock and things like that. But give us a rundown of, of the physical description of the Chupacabra. Well, that the, um, the drawing you referred to in the book is a famous drawing uh, based on uh, eyewitness Madeline Tolentino's uh, close-up sighting of the creature. She had it uh, she, she was looking at it from the other side of either a window or an iron gate. Mm -hmm. So she was actually had it right there in front of her. Wow. Um, the creature has been variously described as having a humanoid body with very powerful kangaroo-type legs and a humanoid head that has been identified as, well, described as being reminiscent as the head of one of the gray aliens that were so popular in um, 90s UFO iconography. Yeah. Um, Cabras also has a crest of either spines or fluttering appendages running down from the crest of its head all the way down its back. Some people have reported uh, a thin membrane under its spindly arms that don't appear to act as wings but do seem to aid it in levitation. Uh, People have seen chupacabras levitate and float, but never actually fly, by which I mean it doesn't flap its arms to fly. Yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about those phosphorescent spine appendages? Because I thought that was really strange. I mean, the other stuff I've heard of somewhere else, at least. Well, it is interesting because you do have the descriptions that range from people having daylight sightings where the spines are not... Uh, noticeable and nighttime sightings where people said they had they glowed, they fluttered, they made noise. So this is certainly one of one of the, the salient characteristics characters of Chupacabras, along with its huge penetrating eyes, which I forgot to mention. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, when we mention the appendages and the membrane under the arms, I have to stress the creature, as described, is much too heavy to be said to fly. It floats, it levitates. In one case, it was seen uh, being as, as a jerked straight up into the air by an invisible force. But no one has ever said it, the thing actually flies. Now, you talked about the Mocha Vampire of the 70s, um, and I've heard various uh, different stories here, so maybe you can kind of clear this up a little bit. Was there a history of the Chupacabra, uh, not just in Puerto Rico, but also like in the Latin American countries or in, in the esoteric field in general? Uh, before it sort of burst onto the scene in the mid-1990s? Well, there's three possible answers to that. Um, one answer, yes, of uh, the lore of the Daino Indians who lived in Puerto Rico include a number of scary creatures. Um, one of them was called the Maboya, and this creature was never really described. I think the priests who spoke to the Indians at the time said they held it in such terrible fear and reverence. He couldn't even describe it, but it's, it was something scary enough to keep them inside their huts at night. Um, that could have been an early description of Chupacabras. As for the rest of Latin America, 
with all the different cultures and um, civilizations that existed from Mexico down to Argentina, you do have stories of frightening creatures. You have um, even some possibilities suggested um, in Brazil that chupacabras-like creatures may have even been worshipped oh, wow. by insect-venerating um, cultures of the South American uh, altiplano, the, the, the high plateau, mm -hmm. as it's called. But now that leads us down to another series of conjectures that takes us away from your question, which is, could chupacabras be an insect? A lot of people have looked into the possibility. They say yes. Um, they say that it emits a smell that's chemical that could be related to, to formic acid, what, ant, what ants produce. It has left a liquid that we call chupacabra's blood, but it's much more like hemolymph, the substance you find in insects. Huh. Um, some people have said chupacabra is just a giant praying mantis that feeds on soft tissue and blood. I mean, we, once we start going down that way, it, it becomes a different ballgame. I mean, that's... Um, but to, to, to remain on track, so to speak, yes, you could say that there were some cultures that could have had a background for chupacabras. But as I said, the phenomenon emerged in Puerto Rico, and the Taino Indians did have the Maboya. Um, and there's a periodicity that some have observed, that I have observed at least. Uh, there were chupacabra sightings back in the 1950s. Again, the mutilations, no creature. Mocha Vampire, 1975, mutilations, no creature. Chupacabras, 1995, mutilations and creature. So with this 20-odd year um, repetition of events, we can expect another outbreak in 2015 or thereabouts. Yeah. So the trick is to stay alive and, <laughs> and see if we actually get a chance to, to put that to the test. Um, now, is there any reasoning, you think, behind this 20-year uh, window between uh, Chupacabra flaps? It would be interesting to think that the creature, if it's, if we're talking about a flesh and blood creature, but it, it hibernates, or that like cicadas, they hatch after a certain number of years, it appears, it feeds, it goes back into its cave dwelling, wherever that happens to be, lays eggs, and then those eggs will hatch and will have chupacabras all over again. Um, I'm much more of a believer, this is my reputation, of having found more of a paranormal answer to things. And I would think that perhaps there are certain windows that appear as Earth and our solar system traverse through the universe as Earth goes around the sun certain times. I don't know. Yeah. That these windows are open and the possibility exists for these creatures to come through. Um, as living here in um, Pennsylvania, I mean, we have appearances of Bigfoot that appear to be, you know, regulated by some strange mechanism we can't tell. Yeah. Um, and then sort of talking about this, uh, this, this big chupacabra flap that happened in the 1990s, talk a little bit about how it was just such an explosion on the scene of Puerto Rico. Because um, when I was reading your book, I was really struck by just how pervasive the reports were. And, um, you know, sitting here and hearing about the chupacabra, you think that maybe there's a sighting like, you know, once a month or something. But then when you're reading the book, it's like, Every every day there's a, a chupacabra sighting going on uh, during this period of time. Talk a little bit about that sort of chupacabra hysteria that was going on in Puerto Rico when this happened. And I think hysteria is a very, very good word um, for it. 
where you had the social phenomenon at the same time, people using chupacabras for advertising, for promotion, uh, people coming on your TV set just to say chupacabras uh, for no reason, then they would cut to another commercial. <laughs> so there was all this going on, all the T-shirts, the balloons, the, the, the pop songs, all the, all the, the, the cultural madness yeah. that happened. That, that, that's undeniable. Uh, so it's easy for me to see now, you know, with 10, 11 years hindsight, how people thought this is all, you know, crazy, Hispanic madness. They've made all this stuff up because yeah, it, at, at one point you, you were completely overwhelmed by it. But now, more seriously, you have to think that Puerto Rico had been undergoing since 1987 or 88 a very, very, very intense UFO wave. Mm-hmm. It had continued unbroken all those years. In fact, the year 1994, right before the Chupacabras appeared, had been incredibly active, full of sightings of different kinds, different parts of the island. Uh, southwestern Puerto Rico, Laguna Cartagena, uh, had been visited by people from all over the world uh, who believed there was a UFO base of some sort under that lake. It's a very shallow lagoon. Obviously, there couldn't be anything under it, but people thought it might be some kind of dematerialization point. So a year after this, you start getting reports in March of 1995, if memory serves, of strange creatures in the trees in central Puerto Rico, in the district of Orocovis, which is in the mountains, at the center of the island. Mm -hmm. Uh, These creatures looked like half reptilian, half gray alien creatures. They were in the trees. They appeared to have hypnotic powers. Uh, People had to fight to wrest themselves from that kind of hypnotic grip that these things seem to have. Then, by the month of May 1995, we were getting reports of giant birds. Um, Usually, Puerto Rico has had reports of giant birds going back decades. Uh, Huge winged birds. uh, Some of them, one of them got into a fight with a night watchman. Um, A a sugarcane cutter died of a heart attack when he saw one of these birds at that time. So now... These strange, high strangeness events Mm -hmm. continue to occur throughout the summer of 1995 until in August of 1995, you start getting the very first appearance of Chupacabras as we've come to know it in Canovanas, which is in northeastern Puerto Rico. That's when Miss Tolentino and her husband actually saw the creature. And by that point, uh, the manifestations of the creature became so regular in Canovanas that people waiting for the bus in daylight were actually seeing it. They were seeing it bounce around, you know, hopping around the streets. Wow. And they were just referring to it as el conejo, the rabbit, or el canguro, the kangaroo, because it would hop around. Um, were they afraid? Yes. Afraid enough that Mayor uh, Jose Chiamosoto decided to take matters into his own hands when he saw that the police were not going to do anything about it. He organized uh, his infamous posse of 200 volunteers, and these guys went out in the night looking for chupacabras. They were looking in caves, in trees. They were looking in storm drains. They were, they were looking for it everywhere. Yeah. And they did have a couple of encounters with it, um, I think down by one of the riversides in Canovanas. But the, the photo of Chemo that went around the world was the image of him and his camo. I mean, he was, I think he's, he's a former National Guard Reserve, um, standing next to this huge cage made of welded, um, 
well, I can't describe it, but these are like the iron bars that people use to protect their homes down there. Yeah. They had just welded this cage together. They thought, well, we're just going to put it there, put a little goat in it, catch chupacabras, and we're going to be famous. Yeah. And, of course, that was part of their of their, their heroic efforts, I should say. But by that point, you're talking October 95, um, the manifestations of the creature were, as you say, on a daily basis occurring not only in Canovanas, but in Aguas Buenas, which is closer inland, um, out in Fajardo, on the eastern coast of the island. Now you start to get cases in the south and western corners of the island. So the activity by October, November 95 was a series of daily occurrences. Uh, of course, no one ever took the subject seriously until a number of horses belonging to island congressmen were mutilated. And that's when uh, I think a, a motion went up in the Puerto Rican Congress to have formal investigations on the Chupacabras. Um, as I said, once wealthy people were, were affected, it, it suddenly became frighteningly real. Yeah. And what was the take on, on the Chupacabra when the Congress investigated it down there in Puerto Rico? What, what did they come out deciding? Well, this is the problem. There was never a, an official investigation. There was a call for an official investigation. Much as 20-odd years earlier, the Congress in Puerto Rico had called for a formal resolution demanding an answer, an explanation to the UFO phenomenon that was bedeviling the island at the time, in, throughout the, throughout the mid-70s. Yeah. And... It was a resolution that I think some people felt it was ridiculous. It would, it would call ridicule upon that particular Congress and the legislative body as a whole. Um, the idea was to have the civil defense go ahead and organize its own uh, investigation, produce its own report. In fact, the man in charge of producing that report, a man named Wisbel Ayala, uh, told me in, I think this would have been a... January, February 1997, that he was two weeks away from finishing his report. It's now, what, yeah. <laughs> September 2006. I'm still waiting for that report. So nothing formal ever came from um, the request made by the authorities. And uh, one of the things that strikes me about the Chupacabra is that it's very different from your typical cryptozoological beast in that it is highly aggressive. Um, we've sort of touched on the fact that, that that's its main claim to fame, apparently, is that it's a super aggressive uh, cryptozoological beast. And with the exception of maybe uh, the East Coast Pennsylvania area of Bigfoots that are kind of noted for being aggressive, you don't really see that in too many other cryptozoological animals. You know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yes, um, we see chupacabras as aggressive, not as much for the mutilations. I mean, we've had cattle mutilations in the U.S. Uh, that are just as bloody. Uh, but those particular cases, I mean, the animals that were completely exsanguinated um, from September 95 through early 97, uh, they do show, let's say, a very dedicated predator yeah. uh, that will stop at nothing. Now, why didn't I think considered aggressive? Well, because there were no real documented attacks on humans. Um, there was two cases in Mexico, Teodora Ayala, um, a woman from the city of Sinaloa, being the first case of an attack. She was leaving her house at night, was scratched by the creature. Uh, then another man claimed that he was attacked. So you have two 
cases involving a shadowy creature that attacked two people in 1997, but not in Puerto Rico, in Mexico. Yeah. Um, the other Chupacabras attack that comes to mind, not really, it wasn't even Chupacabras attack, it was a strange winged entity attack was a couple of years ago in Chile, um, where a man coming back from, I think, a, a, res a, fa a relative's house was attacked on a bridge by two winged entities, and he had to jump into the river to get away from them. But um, I guess with Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, people have seen, well, they, they exist, they may not exist, but whatever they are, they don't seem to have dark designs upon human beings. Yeah. But Chupacabras is um, proactive, let's say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about the perceived uh, migration of the Chupacabra, because uh, like in your book, it, it sort of talks about how the Chupacabra sightings were really big and really reported in Puerto Rico. Then all of a sudden, the Chupacabra started popping up all over the place, through Latin America and Chile, especially in Brazil and Mexico, and then eventually southwestern United States. Can you talk a little bit about how this migration seemed to happen, and do you think it was a, an actual migration of the Chupacabra, or was it merely a migration of reporting of reportings of sightings of Chupacabras? Now, that's, that's, that's a good question. I think that if you try to follow the... Um let's call it the migratory pattern, mm -hmm. assuming it was a migration. Uh, you had all your cases in Puerto Rico running from 95 to 97. That was like a, the odd 18-month window that seemed to characterize some of the Mothman episodes in the stateside. Yeah. Uh, there appears to be a certain number of time that these entities are able to manifest themselves. But as the sightings slowed down in Puerto Rico, they picked up, first of all, in Miami, where you had your incidents in the month of May of 96. That very same month, you started having incidents in Mexico, in two different parts of Mexico. You had sightings and animal mutilations in Veracruz, and then you had other events in Sinaloa on the Pacific coast. So at the same time, these are happening. You start getting reports heading down to south into Central America. You have Dr. Uh, Oscar Garcia from Guatemala reporting events in Central Guatemala uh, where the creature appeared to leave a very strong radioactive signal wherever it went. Wherever he found prints, wherever he found um, this strange hemolymph or chupacabra's blood, he would find traces of radiation as well. Um, it started manifesting itself in Costa Rica where anthropologists said that this was all a delusion and it had it had much to do with, I guess, they gave it a Marxist reading, where Chupacabras yeah. was unbridled capitalism, exploiting people, you know, you can imagine. Yeah. Um, by then, now, now you're moving into 1997, you have events in the American Southwest, you have all your cases along Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, but more interestingly, you start having mutilations on the other side of the ocean. You start getting your cases in Portugal and Spain. Wow. Um, and those, in those, interestingly enough, the Chupacabras creature was not seen. They saw a mandrel-like entity at one point. And that mandrel-like entity would become common in the Chile sightings of the year 2000. So you have a number of events going on, so you can't really say that this creature, as the press suggested, 
had left Puerto Rico and was going elsewhere, it seems that spontaneous generation was taking place over the course of these 18 to 24 months yeah. in a number of places. For those of us who are un zoologically impaired, what, what, what is exactly a mandrel-like creature? Well, the creature that was reported in Spain in 97 was described as a mandrel, looking more like an ape than mm. anything else. Okay. Uh, a, clearly an out-of-place um, creature for Spain. Yeah. However, you can take into consideration that there are Bigfoot sightings in the Pyrenees, the mountain range between Spain and France. So it could have been something along that, that order of being. I mean, we don't know. Yeah. The fact remains that from 1996 to 97, 1,267 sheep, sheepdogs, and horses were killed in Spain uh, by mutilation, by exsanguination, I should say. So something was very active in that time period there. Uh, as I said, when we start looking at the, just at the, at the body counts um, in, this, in, in this rather limited time frame, you come up with amazing numbers. I mean, look, Brazil, 837 animal deaths in 1997 alone. Wow. Uh, Chile, uh, 1,461 birds, poultry alone. Um, Puerto Rico, we've come up with rough, with just guesstimates of between 1,000 to 2,000 animals between 1995 and 2002. Wow. Um, so whatever the... the Whenever they say, well, you know, it doesn't exist, it's a phantom of the Hispanic imagination, it's this and the other, the mute testament is the predation. Those are the creatures, those are the people who lost pets, people who had a livelihood, uh, people who were set back financially in very poor countries. And in fact, it was only one Chilean senator um, in the early 2000s who said, look, let's forget about where the creature came from or what it's doing. Let's talk about the fact that people have lost livelihoods. Let's do something about it. Let's let's not say this. Dogs did this, but dogs clearly didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and could you talk a little bit about some of the more paranormal elements of the chupacabra, especially sort of like this interdimensionality uh, to it? Well, let's begin by saying that the chupacabra has the appeal, the ability to just appear and disappear out of nowhere, first of all. Uh, people never see it arrive. They see it either there, they see it, uh, you know, just suddenly it wasn't there, then there it was, mm -hmm. shall we say. Yeah. It can fly, it can levitate, float, go off somewhere, but never, never, you can never see it take off. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a pastor of a Protestant church in Puerto Rico, this bird daylight sighting, he was driving his little van, I think, with people from his church. They see the chupacabras in the middle of the road, and suddenly it is jerked upward straight into the air. Wow. Heart attacks all over. <laughs> they look. They can't see anything. So when it comes to their the, the, the paranormal uh, aspect, you start getting strange. Well, let's say it ties in with the belief that you have creatures that can somehow come in from a shadowy dimension that's beside our own from other levels of existence, that they can remain in our reality for limited periods of time. A year, 18 months, no more than that. Uh, and that usually, you can see that the, the events, the mutilations extinguish themselves after a the period of time. They can pick up again. But it seems these beings can only remain with us for a certain amount of time, suggesting that they're able to drift into our reality and go back to their own.
Yeah. Um, or maybe even that they get stuck in the reality. Could be. They could get stuck in our own, but then I guess we'd start finding more remains than we actually have. Who knows? Yeah. But in there's an interesting detail in the Brazilian uh, cases that took place in 1998. Most of that year, Chupacabra's activity seemed to be taking place in Brazil for some reason or the other. There were cases of the mutilated animals being found deep inside caves that the farmers would miss, sheep, goats, uh, you name it, and these animals would turn up deep inside caves, huh. caves that were known as being places where, I guess, materializations occurred. Weird. So, you know, this is all anecdotal, obviously. I mean, there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But it doesn't stop people from wondering, you know, are we dealing with something clearly that's clearly solid that can cause effects in our reality but yet seems insubstantial at the same time okay all right and can you talk about this uh story of the psychics looking at the purported chupacabra pictures or something like that i, I only got a vague um outline of this story before well this was an, uh, an endeavor that uh, a well-known u.s parapsychologist peter jordan had uh, had taken upon himself to do. Mm -hmm. I provided him with photographs from the Puerto Rico mutilations, and I think maybe one or two from the Mexican sightings. And he had a number of psychometrists um, take a look at them, or rather take a look at, you know, have a feel yeah. of the photos. Yeah. And the results were very interesting. Uh, not because they seemed to get us any closer to, to an answer, but the nature of the answers themselves. Um, the late uh, Ron, Ron Mangevite, I think his name was, was one of the psychometrists, and he said this creature has takes an intense pleasure in confusing people. Um, the, he could feel a tremendous malice, but a tremendous joy at knowing that people would be so mystified by what was going on. He also, I think when, sh when given a map of Puerto Rico, he said, there's something involving a group of people dressed in white at the look at this location, this particular location, which happened to be the borders of the El Yunque uh, rainforest. Uh, I think it's called the Caribbean National Rainforest properly. Mm -hmm. And the suggestion was that a number of Santeria practitioners had perhaps held a ritual to conjure up this entity. And this entity had manifested itself and had to, was living not of blood. Chupacabras does not eat blood. That's one of the things. Whatever it does with the blood, we don't know. It drains it. Perhaps that energy keeps it going. Um, we can't say. But that was the, um, one of the truly intriguing findings of that psychometry session. The fact that humans seemed to be involved in it and that there was, um, um, for want of a better word, I'm going to call it sorcery involved. Wow, that's bizarre. Yeah, that's very fascinating. But that's only, you can say, from the results of those, um, that particular session. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course. Um, and as far as, uh, like, the, the physical evidence of the Chupacabra, now, uh, I was reading uh, one of your articles from a few years back here in Paranoia Magazine um, with a story about chupacabra eggs and also had a picture of some potential chupacabra hair. So can you talk about the eggs and the hair uh, evidence that seems to have come up regarding the chupacabra? Well, the chupacabra's eggs, if memory serves, was a, a, an event that took place in Chile during the 2000 
Chilean Chupacabras reports, mm -hmm. um, people had said at the time, and the, the media rather. See, this is let me, let me just make this distinction that people just think these are random folks coming forward. Uh, these are all journalistic reports. They're all backed up by their journalists who've been to the site yeah. and researchers on site who work uh, with me on, on, on this subject. Um, in the year 2000, people had reported that up in the northern Chilean desert, the towns of Maria Elena and other smaller villages. Now, these are a, a, a little bit of geographical background. Chile, aside from being the world's longest country with an uninterrupted coastline, is predominantly desert in its northern end. Okay. That's where all the copper mines, the copper mines that um, the Anaconda and the Kennecott Corporation used to own way back when. Mm -hmm. um, people felt that some of these abandoned mines were actually being used by chupacabras for breeding. Uh, there were reports substantiated at the time. I'm not sure what you know what to, what to make of them. Yeah. That stateside interest had gone down to Chile to take away a breeding pair of chupacabras, male and female. I'd never heard of such a thing before. Yeah. Um, yet uh, you had people, air traffic controllers, swearing to have to this fact. And anecdotal, do with the information as <laughs> what yeah, you exactly. make. Um, but the eggs were apparently discovered in these abandoned uh, mines in the Marielena region of, of, of Chile, of northern Chile. Mm -hmm. um, the Chupacabras hairs came from other events, I, I, if memory serves, that took place at that time. They were taken to the Catholic University in Santiago de Chile. And the same result is always inconclusive. Yeah. Uh, people, I guess, hope that in, in, our, in our age of, you know, Profilers, DNA, great TV shows where the answer <laughs> always happens within an hour. Yeah. Most of the results are inconclusive. It's either animal hair with strange characteristics. Um, sometimes they found incredibly high levels of magnesium. Um, some of the blood samples going back to the Puerto Rican events showed concentrations of chlorophyll uh, and blood. So I mean, you don't know what to make of them. And of course, usually, I still get this question to this very day. Why can't, I guess, a conclusive study be performed? And you start running into the number of buzz saws. You have some researchers have the evidence, don't want to share it. Some individuals have the evidence, they feel it's sacred, that it's been given to them as a divine trust, won't part with it. Then you have the financial aspect. A lot of people can't afford to pay for yeah. these tests. You can't go to a state police lab. Uh, they don't accept civilian samples. So you start with a number of blocks that when you do find a university willing to work with you, um, the best you can do is whatever, you know, whatever limited test they can provide. And the answer is usually inconclusive. Here are the findings. We found these minerals, these trace elements, this, that, and the other, but no clearly um, remarkable or distinguishing uh, features. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what about during this chupacabra flap that went on? Were there any decent pictures that were taken of the animal or beast or whatever you want to call it uh, during this time? No, none, none whatsoever. Uh, that's another thing, that's another bone of contention with uh, people who venture to the subject. Mm -hmm. I think most folks feel that if there are so many pictures of UFOs, why aren't there as many pictures of chupacabras? And if there are no pictures, that means it must not exist. Um, Hardly the case. Most people, 
even now in our age of, I guess, cell phone cameras and, and yeah. what have you, if you're faced with the unknown and possibly dangerous, few people have the presence of mind to whip out a camera. Exactly, yeah. So I know that I've been, you know, full of cameras all my life, in my, in my car, everywhere, and if I saw something strange, I don't know what I would do. Exactly. If I would be able to reach into the glove compartment. But we do have some photos from Brazil, from the 1998 sightings, uh, that are blurry, as these pictures seem to be. But after computer enhancement, you do get to see a clearly defined strange, cre strange creature that looks slightly like the drawing that appears in Chupacabra's Diary and other mysteries, um, and like a slight, like something else. There are other features, fangs, in some of these photos that were not reported elsewhere. Yeah. So we don't know what to make of them, but those are the, the only photos, to my knowledge, that are around are the ones from Brazil. Okay. All right. Um, now, what would you say the uh, – I have sort of a list here, but uh, what, what would you say the various schools of thought are regarding what the chupacabra is? It seems like there's a, there's a spectrum here that goes from natural animal to uh, extraterrestrial slash extraterrestrial uh, experiment cargo of some sort, and uh, then over to human experiment gone awry. Would you say that's pretty much the various schools of thought when it comes to what the chupacabra is and also the interdimensional uh, aspect that we talked about? Well, I think that that, that pretty much um, describes the branches of thought. I guess you could also say that it's an unclassified natural creature we know nothing about. I mean, certainly, that's, that's always an option. Mm -hmm. But I guess a lot of people tried to associate chupacabras with UFOs simply because it, it seemed to be appearing in a time that had been known as one of the most active UFO periods in, in, in recent history. So many people felt that it was tied to UFOs, that it had been dropped off by aliens, that it had escaped from aliens, yeah. uh, that it, the description, at least in its head and its wraparound eyes, it looked alien, so it had to be from another planet. Uh, others felt that we were just dealing with some kind of strange experiment gone wrong. And remember, a lot of this had to do with that and I, 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 in every single interview I do, I bring it up, that famous photo of the mouse with the ear growing out of its back. Uh, that was, I think, an MIT experiment of yeah. some sort. Uh, people felt, look, if, if we had not known, if we hadn't been told that this technology was so advanced, and this is what is publicly acknowledged, you can imagine what's going on behind the scenes we're not even being told about. Yeah. So... You know, tied into Roswell fever and UFOs, and they figured, well, it's half kangaroo, half alien head. Uh, you start thinking the government is doing experiments based on what it's gleaned from Roswell and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that, that was one option. Now you have the other possibility that I was mentioning slightly earlier in our interview, which is the fact that it could be an insect of some sort that's been with us forever. A Brazilian cryptozoologist by the name of Fernando Grossman suggests that there could be entire subterranean colonies of chupacabras-like creatures that behave much like ants and have come to the surface as a result of deep earth activity, whether it's heavy mining for minerals in Brazil or our own deep sea oil activity. Something has brought them to the surface. Um, 
And this cryptozoologist says, look, look at how chupacabras kills. It does not pounce on its prey. It lathers them up. In some cases, it, it, you see some kind of proboscis emerging from its mouth that it punctures creatures with. It leaves its telltale puncture mark. Um, a lot of that, it seems that stinger is capable of delivering some sort of enzyme to the victim that liquefies the organs and makes them much more readily absorbable. That was always one of the key aspects in Chupacabra's uh, reports, that the farmer would find not only that the uh, his animal's blood was gone, but that organs seemed to have melted away. He was finding hollow cavities inside of the inside the animals. So that goes to reinforce that possibility that we're dealing with some kind of insect we know nothing about. Yeah. Um, in Puerto Rico, a lot of people kept saying that whenever, even if they hadn't seen chupacabras, they would know it was around because of a strong chemical smell. Yeah. A smell that one witness likened to the um, chemical malathion that we use, the insecticide malathion. Okay. He says that's what it smelled like to her. So yes, we keep on going back to this formic acid, some kind of, I don't want to coin a new term here, but like a super insect. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've heard, I've never really heard that, that part of the discussion before, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, and now, what about the uh, the general sort of uh, paranoia aspect of um, that the U.S., I guess you kind of touched on this already, actually, the U.S. government and NASA's role in, in this chupacabra mystery? It sounds like that NASA may have been vaguely involved in this somehow. Well, see, that's one of the things that goes around that I always have to caution and say, don't forget any agency, U.S. agency, that wants to operate with a free hand in Latin America just has to say it's from NASA. Oh, really? Because the space program was held, as I said earlier, in such high regard in Latin America yeah. that anything having to do with space, that's okay, you're from NASA, you step right in. Wow. Uh, so it, it's possible that whatever agency was being seen down there, uh, showing credentials that suggested being from NASA. Remember, a lot of people from NASA do bona fide go down to Chile to test, um, I guess, a lot of the uh, remote probes that we're going to use on, in, in Mars, such as the, the Opportunity rover. Mm -hmm. Things like that have been tested in Chile in the desert. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yes, there is that, there's that cover that has been used to death in Mexico and Puerto Rico. Just have people go down, military personnel dressed in white, put lab coat, put them in lab coats, say they're from NASA, no problem. <laughs> no complaints. Wow. See, that's that's something I'd never really uh, known about. I didn't realize that, that the NASA was held in such high regard down there. Um, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. no. It, it, it just, it, I think it goes right back, as I said, to the uh, the Apollo program, people saw it as a great opportunity for all of mankind. Um, now that there have been political changes in Latin America, I mean, you can read about them in the paper every day. Yeah. Uh, maybe that kind of welcome mat has sort of been pulled in a little bit. So if it's tried again, I'd like to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, NASA's kind of stagnant now as it is, so I'm not surprised. Um, and in general, uh, outside of the, the Chupacabra, talk a little bit about the U.S. government's shady dealings going on down in Puerto Rico. Like you said, there's rumors of uh, whether it's a UFO underground base or a U.S. underground base. There's, there's rumors of bases and rumors of U.S. activity and UFO activity going on in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm sure you're really familiar with these sort of urban legends and stories. Um, can you extrapolate on that a little bit? 
Well, we can begin by saying that there is no doubt that uh, no other piece of land under the U.S. flag has been as intensely used by the military as has, has as Puerto Rico has been since 1898. Uh, at one point, you had about 20 military bases from all branches of the service. Wow. Uh, until Roosevelt Roads shut down a couple of years ago. That happened to be the one of the major bases. And El Yunque brain forest was being employed back in the Vietnam days to test Agent Orange. They tested radioactive agents. Um, a number of things were done back then that still, you know, uh, the Puerto Rican people have very, very long memories. So a lot of even more incidents um, could be could be brought forward. Um, but I think a lot of the UFO-related stuff had to do with activity that took place between 1988 and I'm going to say 1994 as a cutoff date. A lot of the reports in Laguna Cartagena and southwestern Puerto Rico, uh, the triangular uh, UFOs were being being seen yeah. in different parts of the island. Um, the presence of clearly military personnel reporting to, to places where UFO landings had occurred, um, interference uh, with uh, with witnesses by clearly official personnel mm-hmm. in the U.S. government. So, I mean, it, you, you, I'm sure there's a lot more that I don't, I'm not even aware of that's gone on. Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about kind of how the, the Chupacabra sightings have, have sort of died down. Um, is there anything really breaking lately in the last couple of years on the Chupacabra, or has it really fizzled out since the uh, since the 90s wave? Uh, in Puerto Rico, it's largely fizzled out. Maybe once or twice a year, you'll get reports of mutilation. Um, but it's hard to tell exactly what what's going on down there. The creature, the last confirmed sighting of the creature was as far back as 1997 mm-hmm. when it mutilated some horses in central Puerto Rico. I think it's ever been seen since. Um, what has happened is, I think in more, more recently, let's say 2003, 2004, there were a lot of, of chupacabras and winged entity sightings in northern Argentina and in Chile, in the Andean region. Okay. Um, did that tie in to the huge cattle mutilations of uh, that Argentina experienced in the year 2002. I don't know a lot of no one ever reported seeing the chupacabras as part of those mutilations. In fact, the Argentinian wave resembled our U.S. cattle mutilations from the 70s. Uh, the animals were being found. Uh, f- official government denials. Uh, red lights seen in the skies, UFO activity, uh, but no creatures, certainly no chupacabras uh, manifestations. Okay. All right, and sort of moving on to uh, ufology and the UFO phenomenon, uh, obviously you've done a lot of study and work in the Latin UFO scene, and, and since you live in America, you obviously know about the American UFO scene. How would you compare the, the Latin ufology scene to the American to its American counterpart? You know, I think about 10 years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, you could make a, a very pronounced uh, um, distinctions between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, the Latin American UFO scene throughout the 70s still had great uh, traces of, shall we call it, a metaphysical bent yeah. uh, 
to it. There was a lot of contactism. There still is to this day. And a lot of people in Latin America, to my, to my mind, came to ufology and the study of the paranormal through spiritism. Uh, spiritism is a huge devotion of its own in many of these countries. A lot of people, the intelligentsia, have all read the classics, Alan Kardec, all those great 19th century authors. And to do that metaphysical step into ufology is quite logical. But a lot of the writers and a lot of the thinkers brought this metaphysical bent um, to their understanding of cases and the reports. Yeah. Then you had a more, I'm guessing, nuts and bolts crowd yeah. took over from them. And right now you have a, I would like to say, much more of a nuts and bolts contactee amalgam going on there. But there has been a strong current of denying the UFO phenomenon among researchers. Uh, it's become almost a sport to say, well, all of these cases were hoaxes, none of this is real, uh, how could it possibly be real, this must all be some kind of delirium, and I think it's much more pronounced as we speak in Spain than in South America or Mexico. We have a total, complete, absolute rejection of what went before. We're all skeptical. We're all convinced that these were hoaxes, that these were scams, that this was all misinformation, it was all witness error. So it's it's been quite an about face that we haven't seen stateside yet. Oh, I hope it doesn't. Well, yeah. Um, and how would and what do you think is the the cause for that that about face all of a sudden where it's gone from you know pretty open to researching and now skeptical? I think that in recent years, perhaps people find that there's more as as you know. There's a, remember, I guess ufology and the paranormal, study of the paranormal is a very, very human thing. Yeah. We don't have the actual um, items to investigate. We can only investigate cases. We can investigate people. Mm -hmm. As people get older, they start thinking that this belief in strange things, in Martians, in UFOs, what have you, was something of their younger days, and now they want some kind of dignity. So they start wrapping themselves up in... You know, science and knowledge and this can't possibly have been. These were all frauds. This was all hoaxing. And what they're doing right now is systematically knocking down the very cases that they once upheld. Wow. Um, so it, 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 it's, I guess, you know, hope maybe I'm saying I hopefully we won't all be in that position as we grow older. But yeah. I think a lot of people are doing it right now over there. Yeah. Now, is there a younger generation that's coming along to pick up uh, where these people left off, or is, is, is it sort of uh, sort of fizzling out now? I think, personally, it's a purely personal opinion. That yeah. It has fizzled out because of the Internet. Um, the days when you could be, let's say, an excitable teenage boy or girl and get into UFOs and want to read the books and visit the sites and borrow money to get on the bus and go see these things, it, it, it's over. Now you get on the internet, you go to a couple of you know, web lists, you go to a couple of chat groups, uh, you exchange angry words with people, and then you forget about it. Yeah. And that's what I, I think, that there won't be a next generation, or it'll be a very small generation of, number one, of researchers, and number two, of people actually interested in the subject. 
Wow, that's that's disappointing. It's 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 a rather pessimistic appraisal. I I, I realize, but that that's what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and as far as uh, like the mainstream reaction, the mainstream media, and 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 what uh, what the everyday layperson uh, believes and thinks in the Latin countries, what would you say their attitude is toward the paranormal? Well, it's interesting. I think that a lot of people early on, for example, when I was living in Mexico in the seventies. Uh, there was great open-mindedness. People felt, yes, this is all happening. These are all from space. These are all other planets coming to get in touch with us, whatever. Mm-hmm. As years went on, you notice people thinking, no, these are events created by the government to distract us from our problems. And that seems to have been, bar none, the prevailing attitude in Mexico when I visited to look into the Chupacabras cases of 1997, um, throughout the no, nothing's happening. This is all the government trying to distract us from the economic crisis. Uh, likewise, in Chile, many people felt, look, these mutilations or something else going on, uh, but there's nothing extraterrestrial about them. Uh, so it's, it's hard to, it's really hard to say that there's a blanket sentiment um, in over a dozen countries, but I think that the average person now looks at the paranormal is slightly jaundiced eye. Okay. All right. Um, and then as far as uh, Mexico and the Mexican UFO culture, a lot of people uh, say that uh, some that most of the amazing and important stuff is going down right now in Mexico, uh, where especially like after we had that amazing uh, jet fighter, jet jet footage of UFOs that came out a couple of years ago. Oh, the FLIR, the FLIR images, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and lots of uh, sightings over Mexico City and some of the Armada-type sightings that we've heard of and even this humanoid-type sighting. Um, wh- why do you think so much is going on down in Mexico? And, and tell us a little bit about, like, uh, what is going on down there because it sounds like it's really a hotbed of activity in the last few years. You know, I think the answer there is that I can never think back to a time when there wasn't heavy... UFO or paranormal activity going on in Mexico. The country just seems to cry out for it. It's a huge, mysterious country. I mean, many people, people who've traveled around the world go to Mexico and they felt, you know, we've never felt lonelier or long more to be home than after being in the Sierra Madre, after being in the Mexican desert. It's so alien that it just seems to be a magnet to all these uh, these things. Yeah. Coupled with that, you have some excellent, truly top-notch researchers who've been active for a number of years. Um, Ana Luisa that you have uh, Luis Haspersen, you have a number of other people I could mention who've done sterling work in the past uh, number of years, especially now with uh, the visual stuff, all the the fact that people have always had an interest in photography and now in videography and they're taking movies of anything that moves, uh, passing them on to the right people. You have TV shows that are still interested in presenting an unbiased, non-sensational approach to these things. So as long as that happens, there's going to be a lot of information coming forth. Okay. All right. And uh, that kind of segues really well into... um your uh, this website that you had been working on for a while. We can talk about how uh, the evolution of it and everything it is inexplicata.us, i n e x p l i c a t a dot u s. That is uh, inexplicata, the journal of Hispanic ufology, and that is a lot of information that you've taken uh, that was in uh, Spanish and translated into English for 
for the uh, English-speaking audience. Uh, talk a little bit about Inexplicata, how it, what it is, how it came about, and um, it doesn't seem like you're producing any more issues, so, uh, you know, what, what's going on with, with it? Well, back in 1998, uh, my Mexican colleague, Dr. Rafael Lara, and I decided that it was about time that we had some kind of, like a formal organ or agency through which we could put forth all the information we both had in our files mm -hmm. for so many years. Um, being that just magazines weren't enough, we needed something much more dynamic. So for since 1992, I had had a small um, uh, newsletter, which then evolved into an explicata with a clearly defined view, which was to provide feature-length articles by the leading researchers in the Spanish-speaking UFO community available to an English-reading audience. Yeah. So our charter members, Manuel Carvajal in Spain, you have Encarnacion Zapata in Brazil, a number of people, all provided us with their leading-edge research and cases at the time. And we produced, it was going to be a, a, a twice-yearly publication, which it was for a number of years. And then as time went on, we noticed that just wasn't the interest in um, having this information out there. But there was interest in having up-to-the-minute cases. So it was my opinion at the time that while Inexplicata still exists um, as a journal, it certainly does, we don't do the features anymore. We try to do the immediate, everyday cases, circulate them to a number of websites, post them to our own blog, yeah. and just keep it from there, just keep that immediacy. Which I think that our original approach was better for, let's say, the ufology that we had grown up, grown up with. Mm -hmm. You know, where you have like a saga UFO magazine appearing once or twice a month, you know, twice, once every two months. Yeah. But now people wanted to hear, with the internet, I guess everything becomes faster. Yeah. Everyone wanted to know what happened yesterday. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to hear about yesterday's case two months from now. So this more dynamic approach has served us very well and has let us also transmit things we couldn't do before, like photographs, uh, podcasts, things to that effect. Awesome, awesome. And that's at inexplicata.blogspot.com? That's correct. Okay, awesome. And you can still find the back issues of uh, Inexplicata, the Journal of Hispanic Ufology. Those are still available at inexplicata.us. It's definitely correct, worthwhile yeah. reading, so check it out. Um, tell us about your books, Chupacabra and Other Mysteries, and Flashpoint, High Strangeness in Puerto Rico. Where can people get them? Um, you know, give us a little thumbnail on what they're about. Well, Chupacabras uh, and Other Mysteries tells you the story of the Chupacabras wave from 1995 through 1997, perhaps early 98. No, 99, the spring of 97, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and it also delves into other aspects of the paranormal and cases of, let's say, of Latin American and Spanish uh, ufologica and uh, paranormal events. Yeah. Uh, Flashpoint, High Strangers in Puerto Rico, is more of a little history book. It tells you the story of UFOs in Puerto Rico from the time of the Taino Indians, which is the 1500s, to the early 90s, right before the Chupacabras appeared. Um, Chupacabras and uh, the Mysteries is available from Amazon.com, and I believe Flashpoint can be found at Amazon 
www.ghostbusters.co.uk. It was published in England. I believe it's still available there. Oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. And is, you can get it through that, and it'll, they'll send it to America? I, I believe so, yes. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Well, uh, what's next on your plate? What do you have coming up? Uh, you know, what, what can we look forward to from you in the future? Actually, I'm slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have any major works uh, in mind. I just continue to do our daily updates to the UFO community regarding the cases that are occurring. Uh, what I have broken into has been you know, taking all the photos, the incredible archive of photos that we have, and creating little uh, video reports um, uh, for, so people can see these photos on the Internet. Uh, uh, one or two of them are on YouTube currently. And um, that's something I find very rewarding, just being able to show the old show, Don't Tell. Yeah. Uh, to actually the show and put musical backgrounds and let people actually see with their own eyes. Awesome. Uh, this information that we receive on a regular basis. Awesome, awesome. And they can find that kind of stuff at inexplicata.blogspot.com? That's correct. Awesome, awesome. Well, Scott, thank you very much for being on the show. You had a wealth of information for us um, on a subject that really doesn't get as much play as you'd expect. The books are Chupacabras and Other Mysteries and Flashpoint, High Strangers in Puerto Rico. The website is inexplicata.blogspot.com. You can find the link at banalofamerica.com where you found the interview. Scott, thank you very much for being on the show. Hey, Tim, thank you so much for having me. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. Big thanks to Scott Corrales for coming on the show. Just a fascinating conversation. You can find out more information about Scott at his website, www.inexplicata.blogspot.com. I-N-E-X-P-L-I-C-A-T-A dot blogspot dot com. Check it out. I also want to thank Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, and Joe V. of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Much of what you see and hear from BenAllOfAmerica.com is a product of the hard work of these fine folks. Check out their columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com. They are putting out top-notch material week in and week out. Leslie writes Grey Matters, Chiron has the K-Files, R. Lee pens Trickster's Realm, and Joe V. is the man behind the infamous Wrath of Joe. They cover Esoterica from A to Z, top to bottom, and all points in between. BenAllOfAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer, and you want to help support the audio series, click the PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com, make a donation. A radio show like this costs money. I pay that money with the help of Banal of America audio listeners like you. So if you can, click the PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com, make a donation. It would be hugely appreciated. Additionally, we are hoping to add a new feature here to the end of the program starting next week. It's called Listener Feedback. You send us an email, I read it on the show, I respond to it. Simple as that. You have an opinion on a previous guest, what they said. Maybe you take umbrage with it, maybe you agree with it. You have an idea for a future guest, or you just have an overall comment on the show in general. You can send your feedback to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or just click one of the many links at BenAllOfAmerica.com for contacting me, and it will put you on the path to having your email featured on Banal of America Audio's listener feedback segment at the end of next week's program. Next week on Banal of America Audio, Paula Harris, geo-ufologist extraordinaire. Originally this was going to be a two-part episode, but 
I will be in Las Vegas two weeks from today for the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. So instead of splitting up the interview and having that one-week hiatus in between, we decided just to roll out an extra-large, over-two-hour edition of Ben All of America Audio to make up for that missing week in two weeks. We're going to be talking about Paula's early influences, some of the people that shaped her early path in the ufology world, ufology in general, exopolitics, and some of the key differences and similarities between American ufology and the Italian-slash-European ufology scene, plus tons and tons more. Paula Harris, next week on Banal of America Audio. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening. This is Tim Banal, signing off.